There's an issue of Life magazine. I was uh, in high school, a senior in high school, and I remember picking up this copy of Life magazine. And it was came out around Easter 1995, and it was uh, the cover of the magazine that caught my eye at the grocery store, as they like to do. And it was uh, a painting of a figure that we're supposed to understand to be Jesus with the question, who was he? That's a interesting representation of Jesus, but all that aside. Um, and in the article, I had this article for years, and it got lost in one of the moves. Uh, but there are dozens of articles, thousands of articles like this in secular periodicals. But in that article, I remember there were all kinds of Bible scholars and and religious experts, religious leaders, sociologists, archaeologists, celebrities that were sharing their opinions on who Jesus was. And all the opinions and the in the layout that was put forth by the editors of Life magazine basically had equal validity in terms of how they were laid out in this magazine. And the reader was left to decide what to make of Jesus. Well, there's a couple of things wrong with that. And first is they asked the wrong question. They're asking who was he, but it should be who is Jesus. They're, they're showing their hand even by phrasing that question in the past tense. Um, but second, they, as you would read the article, they swung at and completely missed uh, the truth about Jesus. Well, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to answer the question, who is Jesus? We talked about this last week, that his whole purpose in writing this gospel account is to persuade anybody who reads these words to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to believe in you would have life in His name. He wants us to know Jesus, to believe in Him, to be confident in who He is, and therefore to have life in Him. He wastes no time, as Howard said, getting to his point either. There's, there's no warm-up, no background, no birth narratives to kind of soften us up to the story of Christ. He just explodes with the first stroke of his quill. And his, his strategy seems to be shock and awe. We're familiar with shock and awe when it comes to military doctrine and strategy and it's that it's that use of just overwhelming power spectacular displays of force to just kind of paralyze the enemy and 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 just destroy their will to fight on the battlefield well to 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 just freeze the enemy thinking resistance is futile that's shock and awe well John comes right out of the gate with this overwhelming and spectacular statement on the person of Jesus Christ The one he wants us to believe in so that we can have life in his name. And he begins this way, as we've already read. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John wants our will to fight. Our will to fight against the supremacy and the authority of Jesus over our lives, over everything. He wants it to just be devastated. And, and, he, and this is what he's setting out to do. Instead, he wants, us, he wants us to believe in him. And believing to have life in his name. It's this word. Who is the word? Well, we know the word is Jesus. 
And we don't find the name of Jesus mentioned until verse 17, but but it's crystal clear who he's talking about. Verse 14 makes the connection obvious for us that this word, whoever the word is, he became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word. So why doesn't John just begin by saying, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Why does he begin with this word? The fact that he's called the word is significant. Much scholarly ink and a lot of non-scholarly ink has been spilt on John's use and concept of the word here in, in, in this account. But I would just say for those original readers in the first century AD, this title would have resonated with Jews and Gentiles alike. And you remember we talked about this. Most likely the Gospel of John was written from Ephesus, which was a tremendously diverse city, and, and written to, uh, to, to folks in Asia Minor, um, which was a diverse region. But to the Jewish readers... The word, particularly connected to that phrase, in the beginning, would have immediately taken their minds back to Genesis 1. And we'll see that reference here in a moment. To creation. God spoke and the world came into being. That's what we find in Genesis 1. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Verse 9. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So the the Jewish readers would have connected the word with creation, the beginning. But then for the non-Jewish readers, there was this centuries-old Greek concept of the word, the logos. It's a Greek word. Reason. And this, this would have come to mind. This was a deeply entrenched ideology at the time that John was writing. It was 700 years old, but it was, it was just part of that, that Greek culture. The, the Logos was, 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 was a god, as it were. That this, this was the rational principle by which everything existed. This was, this was just assumed by Greeks in John's day, that there was not a personal God, but that there was this impersonal reason that was the cause of everything that exists. And so that's some of the background. And we do not know how much of that John had in mind as he's writing this. And and it's speculation. But what we do know is that John hijacks the word word and he blows their minds by connecting it to this person of Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus is the Word is huge because what is it communicating? It's saying that He has always sought to reveal God to us. It's always been His purpose. Jesus has always been and always will be the Word. He did not become the Word at the Incarnation. That's not when He began revealing God to us. No, the Word, the communication of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So we got to see His glory. Glory is of the only begotten. But it's always been part of Jesus' identity and personhood to reveal God. And so as the Word, Jesus reveals God. He reveals what the invisible God is like, particularly in the Incarnation. But you can't know my thoughts unless I speak well, Brooke would be the exception to that rule, but she's not here, so you can't. And um, God is spirit. 
He's, he, he, our, our, our finite senses can't, can't understand Him. He's invisible. He's infinite. We can't know God. We cannot know God, First Timothy 16, because He dwells in unapproachable life. No one has ever seen or can see Him. We'll see in verse 18 of John 1 that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John 14, 9, a great text. And I look forward to getting there. Jesus Himself said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. His response to Philip. So Jesus is the Word. What does John tell us about this Word that is Jesus? Just three things this morning that we learn of the Word and... and and I hope that it will just blow our minds, make them larger in, in our understanding and love for Jesus. The first thing is this, is try and comprehend. I dare you to just hang with me and try and comprehend the absolute uniqueness of Jesus' person. Let's see it together. We Now, this is where we probably should have the communion plates and like pass out Advil or Tylenol or whatever you're headache medicine of choice is because your brain is going to hurt if you think hard about this. I mean, this opening prologue of John is like the whole gospel of John. We said this last week. It's simple, and yet it's so deep and profound. I was just thinking to, to illustrate that and how we see it even in these opening words. We When we go out to West Texas with Brooks' family, I've talked about this before, but you go out there and and, and you, you get out there and you're far from any city, far from any, any light. And you just look, turn, go out at pitch dark, look up at the stars. It's just incredible. You see so much. And, and it's just crazy. But then if you, could get a, if you get a pair of binoculars, you just see so much more. It's so much deeper and it just blows your mind. And then if you just get a basic telescope, you just go farther into space and you could get the if you could get the Hubble telescope out there and just look and peer deep, deep, deep in the space, far beyond what the naked eye could see. It's just crazy. And then you realize that we're just seeing like in front of our face in terms of the vastness of the universe. And this is this is John. We 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 you can look at these words your whole life and just gaze deeper and deeper into the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will. And we can do that for all eternity and we won't reach the outer boundaries of who Christ is. The uniqueness of his person. And yet, if you're reading, if you're here this morning and this is your first time in the church and the first time you've ever read the Bible, you can understand it and get it. It's crazy. But this just see what we see of the uniqueness of Jesus' person. The first thing is his mind-blowing eternality. He's the eternal one. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, again, takes us back to Genesis 1.1, when God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, was the Word. At the beginning of the universe, the Word already was in existence. There never was a time when the Word did not exist. He simply was. This is the tense of the Greek verb here. Just hang with me. We call it an imperfect tense. It's not because it's messed up. It just It's looking at a past action that, that has continuous Affects The Word was being. The Word was continuing. 
in the beginning. One said, Jesus always was, wasing. Sorry, you grammarians, but I didn't say that. Somebody else said it. He always was continuing. There never was a time when the word was not. That's crazy. If we just keep thinking farther and farther and farther back in time, as long as far back as our minds can go, again, we can go back our lifetime and thousands of years and back to the beginning of creation and, and we go farther back into eternity and, and we go farther and farther until time just disappears. We haven't even begun to get to... There's no beginning. Colossians 1.17 just says it very simply. He is before all things. The Word. In the beginning, the Word was. He was continuing. So He's the eternal one. He's also the other one. And that's the second thing. And the Word was with God. He was with God. And we see here His incomparable company. The word was, same tense, was continually with God. This is a very subtle but weighty statement. That little preposition with. That's what the whole phrase turns on here. The word Jesus was with God. That means that Christ has, was, was eternally existing in his own unique separate personality. And again, even More basically, what this is saying is that the word is a person. It's not a philosophy, not a concept, not reason, not an idea. It's a person. And now we can pass the Advil again here. Make the round two. Um, And what we see here is is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. The diversity of one God revealed in three persons. All persons equally God. And yet we don't have three gods. We have one God. Existing for eternity. Oneness and threeness. And that's not just some theoretical, abstract theology that we have to create this little doctrinal statement that we all agree to and sign off on. That's not what we're, that's not what the Trinity does for us. No, what the, what, what the Trinity does is it changes everything. This this little expression, the word was with God, it changes everything. The Trinity is not something we need to be talked into believing. The Trinity is a reality into which you and I are already completely immersed. You're already living in the realm of the Trinity. We're just seeing reality as it really is. That however much or little you understand, if you are born again, you are completely engulfed in the work and the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit today. I'll just give you an example of this and let this just blow up how you think when you pray. That, that when you pray, there is always already a conversation going between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is always going on. And when you pray, you are simply, not simply, you are profoundly joining in to that conversation that God is already having. It's crazy. See, this is what we see of Jesus. He was this word that just was in the beginning. He was with God. Jesus was with him. And and, and this is not this preposition. It's not just communicating that they're distinct. It's communicating nearness. It was with him. It could be translated face to face. Towards God. 
That, that, that the word has always existed in the closest connection to the Father and to the Spirit. There has always been this deepest equality, deepest intimacy within God. Jesus has always been an eternal, continual, perfect, joyous, intimate fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. Now, the truth of that phrase, I mean, we could preach a whole series on the Trinity and not just the, the doctrine of it, but the implications of it in our life. They, they reach every part of our lives as Christians. I honestly, I just want you to, to just soak, though, in the impracticality of the reality that Jesus was with God. Just, just don't think, okay, what does this mean for my life this week? Just for a second. It means everything for your life this week. But just, just try to begin to understand what this is communicating. God has always existed Jesus has always existed in perfect harmony and unity with the Father and happiness with the Father and the Spirit. He didn't create the world. He didn't make us to feel some need or emptiness in his life. He didn't make us because he was lonely or unfulfilled or bored. He has always always existed, as one writer said, living in the happy land of the Trinity. God knows nothing of that kind of neediness or dependence. John 17, 4 and 5, we'll we'll get to there. Jesus enjoyed perfect glory with the Father before the world ever existed. So just soak in that. And let your mind be blown. Let your mind see Jesus bigger today. Third thing that we see about the uniqueness of His person is His intrinsic deity. And the Word was God. With God, and the Word was God. He was constantly, continually God. One commentator said, Nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the Word. The statement should not be watered down. John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus, he is affirming that he is God. Jesus was, is God in every way, although he's a separate person from the Father and the Spirit. This phrase, it it preserves Jesus' separate identity while also fully affirming the fact that He is indeed fully God. And if you've had an encounter with Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and other religions have uh, missed it here, we know that they claim that, the Jehovah's Witness anyway, they claim that the Greek text or or their their translation, the New World Translation, that it says the word was a God. Because there's no definite article before the word God here in this verse. I'm just saying this comes up very quickly when you're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'm just wanting to help you think through this. Lest your faith be shaken. This is not, or I would say just a couple of responses to that. This is the only way in Greek to say the word was God. There's another way to do it. And if John had used the definite article before God, it would be, it would be um, equating completely the Word and God so it would say there's basically no distinction of persons. Then the Holy Spirit wouldn't be God and the Father wouldn't be God. It would only be Jesus who was the God. And that would be another heresy. But there are... And the second thing I would say is there are so many other scriptures that clearly proclaim Jesus 
is, is that he's God. Even in John's gospel, in John 5.18, the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because he's making himself equal to God. And in response, Jesus doesn't correct them, saying, well, you know, I, I didn't really mean to imply that I'm God. Uh, I mean, I'm like God or one of the gods. No, he says in verse 22, it says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That's a bold claim to deity. At the climax of John's gospel in John 20, 28, this is really the, the pinnacle of, of where, he's, where he's moving toward. Thomas sees the risen Jesus and proclaims, my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him. Instead, he affirms that profession. Years later on the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John has a vision of the risen Lord in Revelation 1, 17, 18. How it will be here in a couple weeks on Sunday night. John fell before Jesus as a dead man. And Jesus says to him, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now you lay that aside beside Isaiah 44, 6 and says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And in, in light of those texts, we see Jesus clearly claiming to be the Lord of hosts, the one, the only living and true eternal God. Now, everything that can be said about God the Father, then, can be said about God the Son. Think about that. We study the attributes of God. And be honest, you, you, when you study, if you read through those books, or you take a class, or you hear a sermon preach, it's easy to think of of God the Father, maybe, as we're describing those attributes. But everything we say about the Father can be said of the Son. His sovereignty, His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His love, His grace, His wisdom, His eternality. Everything that's true of the Father and the Spirit can be said of the Son. Now, there's just a couple implications of that for us before we move on to the next point. One is this, to say that Jesus Christ is God is to say that we can know the truth about God. That we can know what he's like. And, let me, and the, the, the opposite of that is to, the other side of that is that apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. What a motivation for us to evangelize. We have, I just, uh, just a reminder, we have like 500 copies of this Gospel of John and and I would encourage you again, we have the invite cards and use these things in, in the coming weeks and months to invite folks. We'd love to see every one of these uh, distributed over the coming weeks as we, uh, again, not just to invite them to church, that may be part of it, but to, to, to read through this with people and share who Jesus Christ is so that they might believe and believing have life in his name. Um, so so this, is a, this is, we've got to proclaim Jesus. It's the only way people will know God. Uh, just one other quick little kind of announcement plug, but related to this is we, we're, we, John and Rachel Sherwood, as you know, they work with international students in Georgia State University, and this is a big time of year for them as their new students are coming in and they're building relationships. One small part of their ministry is they, they'll come down to our house on Labor Day and have a, uh, we'll have a cookout and 
they're inviting all the new students that they're meeting. And uh, if you would like to be a part of that, again, these students are coming from all over the world, most of them from, from uh, countries that are really closed off to the gospel, uh, the ones that will be here. And, and so we have an opportunity to begin to build relationships. It's not an evangelistic event where we're giving a gospel presentation, but if you are interested in getting to know some of these students and developing relationships, so you have opportunities to show the truth about Jesus Christ because this is the only... There, many of them are very religious, but they don't know God because they don't believe in Jesus. And this is what it says. This is what this text, text is showing us. So if you're interested... Providing food, providing, helping set up, coming and conversing, talk to myself or to Brooke and we can tell you more about that. Um, don't just show up at our house. We need to know who's coming, so <laughs> make that clear. Uh, the second implication of this is that to say that, just listen to how I worded it, to say that Jesus Christ is God means that God has always been and always will be like Jesus. Um, Think in, in reverse. Sometimes we think of, of God as holy and just and stern and full of wrath and indignation. And Jesus is loving and, and, and gracious and compassionate. And, and it's almost like that when, that when Jesus came in the incarnation and through his death and resurrection, he did something that kind of changed God's attitude toward humanity. That it kind of melted the Father's heart. And that is just foolishness. What, what, what we see and what we know of Jesus is what's been true of God for eternity. And so, again, just get that. Does Jesus hate sin? Absolutely. God has always hated sin. Does Jesus love sinners? Yes. And God has always loved sinners. Um, so this is, this is where it begins. Just this crazy picture. Just the uniqueness of who Jesus is. Just in his person. One commentator, C.K. Barrett, he comments on just on verse 1 of John 1. And he says this, that John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, then the book is blasphemous. So don't miss the significance of this verse. Verse 1 and 2. Second thing that I want to see this morning. Is try, just try, I dare you, and grasp the vastness of Jesus' power. Verse 3 continues, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That the Word, Jesus, is the agent of creation. All three persons we know were involved in creation. But, but Jesus, we could say this, that everything in the universe, the things that are visible, the things that are invisible, all things owe their existence to Jesus. That's what we'll see here. Now, the, the contemporary attack, and it's not really new, it's an age-old attack on Genesis and on creation. What we see here then is that that is really an attack on Jesus. Uh, and And... But the Bible leaves no doubt here. Jesus' creatorship is the consistent witness of Scripture and of the New Testament. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. 
Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 1 Corinthians 8.6 There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Jesus is the instrument of creation of everything. Just try to get your mind around that. You can't. Just think. I mean, we could think of any aspect of creation, but space is the one that always just blows my mind, and that's by the design of God. There are there are between a hundred billion and four hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. In our galaxy. And the average galaxy has at least a hundred billion stars. And, and, and there are at least a hundred million galaxies in known space. And it's believed that our largest telescopes have scanned, they estimate just the, well, they, I uh, just, the tiniest fraction of, of theoretical space. Some say one billionth. What? That means there are probably something like 10 octillion stars in space. I didn't make that number up. That is, I was reading that. If you think a thousand thousands is a million, a thousand millions is a billion, a thousand billions is a trillion, a thousand trillions is a quadrillion, a thousand quadrillions is a quintillion, a thousand quintillions is a sextillion, a thousand sextillion is a septillion, a thousand septillions is an octillion. Ten of those. It's like 10 with 27 zeros after it. Stars. And our sun is just a tiny one compared to most of these stars. Jesus created them all. Spoke. Exists. Not only did he create on this macro scale, but he creates on the micro scale. That the whole universe of a single atom was made by Jesus. And he holds it all together. And we just see such wonderful language of creation in Scripture. One of the passages that has always just fascinated me is in, it's that passage in Job 38 where, where, Job is, where God is answering Job. And, and part of his reply to Job, in Job 38 verse 4, we, we find that Jesus did his creating and he did it set to music. Listen, where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, Job, tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. We sang this earlier. Who, who is measured? Behold our God. Surely you know, Job, or, or who stretched the line upon it, or what were it on, or on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Listen to this, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, What a picture. That as God spoke the world into existence through Christ, the angels shouting for joy, and the stars are just just resounding with this chorus of praise to God. Music surrounding creation. 
God, here, here's the word. It's just the vastness of Jesus' power displayed in creation. But that's, that's not all we see in these, in these opening verses. We, we, we try to get our minds around the greatness of Jesus, just who he is as a person, the uniqueness of his person, and the vastness of his power. But the other thing we see is just the enormity of his love. See it right away in John. Try to get your mind then around the significance of Jesus' provision. It says in verse 4 that in him was life and the life was the light of men. What has Jesus provided that's so great and significant? First thing is this, is the gift of rescue from the curse of death. This word life is used some 36 times in the Gospel of John more than any other New Testament book. His purpose again in writing is so that you will believe and believing have life in his name. The question, though, is what life was in Jesus? What life is he talking about? Certainly physical life. We see the connection in verses 1 to 3 with creation. And and that Jesus, the Word, is creator, the giver of life. And that's true for all mankind. But I think John intends more than this. That the, the Jesus' role in creation is true, but it's only groundwork for the spiritual life that he brings. And this is the, the, one of the predominant themes in the book of John, that man is born dead in sin. He needs new life, and, and we can have life by being born again, as we'll see. Those who are spiritually dead in their sins need life, and Jesus is the source of that life. We'll see it throughout John, John 14, 6, that we know well. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 28, those who come to Jesus, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus comes to rescue us from the clutches of death. Second thing Jesus has provided is the gift of release from the chaos of darkness. And the life was the light of men. This is a testimony consistent throughout Scripture that God is light. He's light. When He's revealed in His glory, He's revealed in this brightness. And there's this there's this literal sense in which God is light, and Jesus is the Word, is God. And so when you see Christ revealed, for instance, in the transfiguration, his face shone like the sun. But the emphasis here is on his being, I think, spiritual, life-giving light in the dark world. And again, we'll see this theme worked throughout John. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus the light, he enters, entered into the world by his, entered into the world, this world where the powers of darkness have a hold. And they're at work. And they crucified him. And yet he rose and he conquered the darkness. And that's what the end of verse 5 says. And the darkness has not overcome it. Through the through Jesus' saving work. The, the, he continues to conquer the spiritual darkness. And, and everyone who trusts in him. Jesus, the light, overcomes darkness. The light is victorious. The light always wins. Jesus... Wins the the word translated overcome. It can have two different meanings, and it and your translation may bear this out. It can have the idea of to comprehend, to grasp mentally, 
And, or it can have the idea of to, to overcome, to take hold of something in a sense of kind of mastering it physically. I, I think that that latter meaning is what is intended here by the context. We'll see in verse 10 and 11 that the light faces tremendous resistance. Darkness has always pounced upon the light trying to snuff it out. I think what's saying here is the light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. Has not. One translation says the light still shines in the darkness and the darkness has never put it out. I think that's the idea. It always wins. You turn out a turn on a light in a completely pitch dark room, you can see. I mean it's it always darkness is simply the absence of light, so when light is present, darkness flees. And that's a great picture, isn't it? A great image. Jesus, the life-giving light, seeking out a world that's in darkness. It's, it's Jesus, the true light, verse 9 we'll see, who's coming into the world, constantly seeking to illuminate the darkness, looking for every crack and crevice to shine in, light up. Verse 5, the light shines literally continually in the darkness. Again, is the idea of, of this verb, meaning that he's continually bombarding the dark world with light. Second Corinthians 4, just as a parallel passage, I think it helps us here, that he's referring to those who are perishing. And he's, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's doing it. He's doing it. So who is Jesus? So we come back to where we began. What do you think of him today? Um, The question was raised throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, we call Palm Sunday. The people turned to one another and asked that question. Who, who is this? Matthew 21.10 The disciples asked the question when Jesus calmed the raging seas and stilled the storm. And they asked Mark 44.41 Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Herod asked, said, I have beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? Luke 9, 9. When Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic, the scribes and the Pharisees asked themselves, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the question. The question of all questions. Is Jesus only a man? If he is, then you can afford to forget about him. You should be playing golf today. Or doing, not golf, not today, but uh, something, watching golf, I don't know. Or is he God? If he's God, he, he demands your faith, he demands everything. You should be able to say with Doubting Thomas, again, where the story is heading, and you should be able to confess with him. Say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. (laughs) To believe that is to live. To 
reject that is to perish forever. That Life magazine cover um, asks the question, who was Jesus? Again, we said it's the wrong question, but they give the right answer and they don't even know it, I don't think. And it's right there on the cover. He's life. (laughs) He's life. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And apart from Him, not anything was made that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. John wrote these things so that we would believe every single person who would read these words would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you would have life in His name. And we know we'll see this great text in John 3.36 that all of us need to think about today. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Are you believing Him today? If you're not, this is, this is the day to believe, to call upon Him. Let's turn to the Lord and say, I believe, I believe You to be my Savior. I believe You died for sin, for my sin. I need, I need the salvation that You offer. I need the forgiveness that You give and grant and provide it. I need the redemption through Your blood. I need You, Lord. I need You to save me. Everyone who believes has eternal life. But listen, this is the other part. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not believe, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Serious. We've got to get this question right. We've got to get it right. It's not, though, just a question that we want to just get the, check the box so we pass the test. This is more than that. This is something that should arouse in us and awaken in us for those who do know Christ and who do know that Jesus is the Son of God. That we, we have reason then to, to boldly proclaim this Jesus to all that we come in contact with. And we have reason to celebrate Him and we're going to do that in a moment. We're going to sing more than we normally do at the end of the service and just response and rejoicing and worshiping and just the mind-blowing reality of who Jesus is. Let's pray together and then the team will come. Lord, do help us give strength to our voices that, that maybe we don't think is there, that we would lift them loud and strong and sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord greatly because you're greatly to be praised. And, and so, God... Help us. I pray that, I pray again that as we continue to think about these things and as we maybe read over these words again this afternoon, that Christ will become larger in our, in our hearts and in our minds and in our affections and that, that, um, that it will show up, God, and, and transform us, not just individually as single lives, but as a church, God. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Team.